I'm going about to sound like a conspiracy theorist, by the way, Blake. So if you like a sketch up of each of your guests, put a tinfoil hat on me. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? This is Blake Fletcher, the Half Hour Intern. In today's episode, I interview Peter Dunn, a.k.a. Pete the Planner, about being a personal finance expert. So for those of you who have never heard of Pete or don't know what he does, Pete is an award-winning comedian. He's the writer of 10 different finance books. He's the host of the Pete the Planner radio show on WIBC. He's a columnist for the Indy Star, giving out financial advice. And he also regularly appears nationally on CNN News, Fox News, and Fox Business to dole out financial advice for regular everyday people like you and me. So as kind of a treat in this episode, we're not just going to talk about um, you know who Pete is and how he got to become Pete the Planner and his whole story, but we're also going to cover financial advice and a lot of financial questions for the first half of the show. So that should be pretty nice if you could use some advice for how to optimize your financial situation. So without further ado, here is personal finance expert with Pete the Planner. Pete, thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, Blake. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I think we should do this episode a little bit different than a usual episode. Um, probably the second half of the show, we'll spend talking about your background and how you got into finance and why and all that. But in the first half, um, due to your extensive knowledge and background, if we could, could we tackle some kind of advice questions for people related to finance? I love it. It's like financial speed dating. You just <laughs> You'll see if it's a good match and then maybe we'll have a drink and head home. I don't yeah, know. perfect. I love the analogy. So why don't we start out with um, what do you think is like the number one financial question that young people should be asking themselves? I, I think we, if we don't start with student loans, I think heads are going to explode. Um, <laughs> Because it's it, people are making a big deal about it in the media, and, and it is a big deal. I think people are missing the boat on student loans. We're trying to find ways for people to pay for college without actually lowering the price of college. Yeah. I, I think that's the that's the best place to start. A lot of the solutions that you were finding in the government and the media are people saying, okay, well, what if we subsidize? And it's like, well, subs- subsidizing is not going to do it. We need people to be smarter about the schools they're picking, the majors they're picking, uh, so I guess that that's it. It's the number one question people are asking themselves, especially in their twenties is how do I pay off th- these debts, these tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt of which I agreed to when I was 18 years old. Yeah, totally. And another part of the conversation that I feel like is becoming very strong right now is you see so many people with so much, I mean, thanks to the internet, with so much success that say, you know, I never went to college. And I, I don't think there, I actually just interviewed somebody like this yesterday, who is a very successful graphic designer who never went to design school. And he's like, I just made a portfolio and started working. And that was that. And now he doesn't have any, um, you know, student loans to pay back. What, what are kind of your thoughts on, I guess, taking student loans in general? Yeah, I think the goal should be take as few as possible. The The model for trying to pay for college as you go, I've always felt that if someone's going to work over the summer, if you will, then they should use those funds to defray the cost of tuition. And if they're going to work during the school year, that money should be used to handle expenses. Uh, because otherwise, you'll do what I did, which was... Um, 
you'll you'll make money over the summer and then just spend it like a drunken sailor over the course <laughs> and drunken at times uh, over the course of the semester the first semester and you just whittle it down and Blake whittling down money over the course of time which isn't earned money uh, in the moment is a really dangerous thing because there's no there's no accounting for that there's no budgeting at hand so uh, you know I, people don't want to make tough choices with school because you know, there's, there's prestige with different institutions you go to and the, the social experience is a big part of it. But ultimately, you know, a good journeyman, journeyman plumber can make $80,000 a year in his yeah. fifth year. Yeah. Uh, you don't see a lot of new grads, you know, at age 23 making 80 grand a year. Yeah, definitely not. Um, so you mentioned, uh, like budgeting and financial planning and stuff like that. So let's talk about advice now once someone has gotten out of college, um, be that with a student loan or without a student loan. Uh, what, what advice would you have for a new college grad? Should they be living with their parents? Should they not be living with their parents? Um, what, what to do with money? I like to cut the umbilical cord as quickly as possible with parents. But that being said, I think if you can strategically say, all right, moms, I'm going to live with you for 18 months here is my plan. I'm going to leverage my low expenses to accomplish great things. Then, yeah, I'm totally for that. What I'm not totally for is I don't know what I'm going to do. So I'll just probably hang here. I got cheap rent. So I'm going to have a hell of a good time. (laughs) Yeah. And it's probably 50, 50 of what I see is one's the good way. One's the bad way. You know, a guy working for me just graduated from school smart guy. He's got a ton of goals. He's trying to pay off his 30,000 in student loans in, in two and a half to three years. And part of that is living with his mom and dad for six months so he can just, you know, really take off after those loans and make sure that the interest doesn't start stacking up on him. Yeah, for sure. What advice would you have for someone who's in, in my position right now, which is about to be a newlywed? What sort of financial planning changes do you think happen for somebody when they're going to be getting married? Well, first of all, congrats. Thank That's you so much. Fun. Uh, I, I used to, I've changed my opinion on this. I used to be like tough guy. I was like, if you don't trust your spouse with money, you don't trust your spouse. And I was like, oh, that's a accessories poster. It's like a kitten choking a frog, you know, and it says that. <laughs> but then I realized like my wife doesn't trust me to do home improvement projects. That doesn't mean she doesn't trust me. It's just not my skill set. So yeah. I, I think the best way to handle money, um, as a couple is what I found is whatever works works, but you got to be honest when it doesn't work and try something else. I, my, my personal favorite these days is two separate accounts, but everything is our money. It's just for logistical reasons and the day-to-day operations of a person's financial life of why the accounts would be separate. Um, for my wife and I, I pay, you know, the mortgage, health insurance, blah, 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 blah. She pays the bills, you know, trips to Target, stuff like that. And it and it's balanced. It, it makes sense. But logistically, I don't have to think, well, is she going four places today and what's she going to spend? We don't even have that. If I'm You're spend not over- looking at her finances because it's not a joint bank account. Yeah, no. I, I mean, I could. And, and she can look at mine. We've been married for 15 years and we just figured out... Um, money just magnifies your personality really you know it's like when people get an inheritance and they're they're an idiot they're going to do super idiot things <laughs> and so with us we're pretty laid back and so with even with our relationship so we're just like you know what 
I trust you. I don't need to look over your shoulder. We still have a budget meetings uh, on a regular basis for an accountability standpoint. Uh, so as a newlywed, you should take 20 minutes a month to talk about money, but you probably shouldn't talk about it in any other moment throughout the month than that, because then it starts to be a real kind of a weird, creepy focus. Okay. So let's, let's talk a little bit more about that, about both in a couple setting and in a personal setting of just budgeting, maybe goals, stuff like that. I think most people, I'm sure you would find just do nothing of the sort. Oh, of course not. I mean, and I've got, I'm about to sound like a conspiracy theorist, by the way, Blake. So if you <laughs> like sketch up of each of your guests, put a tinfoil hat on me because I'm right. about crazy. I'm ready for it. I think financial literacy, uh, which is a relatively new idea, ha- has brought about this credit score is king mentality. So when people think about their lives, they think we got to make sure we have good credit which I think is inherently stupid. And, and what we should really focus on is driving our net worth forward. So let's say you're right out of college and you're broke and you're, you're upset about your situation. Well, if you pay your student loan debt on a regular basis, your net worth is going up the, by the same amount as if you were just saving money in your savings account. And there's something empowering about that. There's nothing empowering about borrowing money to prove you can borrow money in case you need to borrow money someday, which is managing your credit score. Yeah, definitely. That's very true. What um what advice would you have someone in terms of driving their net worth if uh let's say they live in like a really expensive city like San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York and they're they're this young person, they move up there and they're starting to save up a decent amount of money but it, they're still, you know, light years away from owning a home in this nice city that they're a part of. Do they just keep on putting money in a savings account? Do they invest that money in stocks? Uh do they buy rental property elsewhere? What, what, what are kind of your best bets for someone who's young living in an expensive city? You know, my thoughts on this have changed recently. I had a young lady from the Bay Area, which, of course, as you know, when someone says they live from the Bay Area, it's not San Francisco. They're from Oakland. Yeah, I, I, I saw on your, uh, on your podcast the other day that somebody said, like, oh, I'm 26 and I bought my first home in the Bay Area. I'm just like, wait, what? How did this even happen? But, yeah, and, you're and probably made- right. I think she made like 70 grand a year and she owned her car outright, had like 50 grand in the bank. She didn't inherit any money. She's not super cheap. She was doing some Airbnb action and she owned a home or she was, in a, you know, she had a mortgage, but she was a homeowner. And uh, so that kind of changed my perspective of the excuses people give themselves in big cities. But at the same time, I'm also a realist knowing um, if you choose to live in a big city, there are trade-offs. Um, at the beginning of your career, you're not likely to be a homeowner and, and that's okay. I, I think people got to abandon the idea that home ownership is the end all be all. It's not the ultimate goal in someone's financial life. You live in San Francisco or you live in Manhattan because there are amazing places to live. You don't live there so you can, you know, paint your walls, whatever color you want. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Um, so I guess what would be, what, what, like, what would you recommend somebody do with their money then if they are going to be living in a place like San Francisco? Sure. I mean, uh, f- for me, it begins with how much you spend on housing. I think that becomes an issue. So let's say, you know, in those big real estate markets, uh, the top five, you know, LA, San Francisco, maybe even Seattle and Manhattan or even Boston. Uh, if your income should probably, your expenses that you put towards rent should be about 35 to 40% of your income at the max. And, and that's where it starts. Because if you're over housed, if you're paying every penny you have just to have a place to sleep, 
you're not going to enjoy your life. You're not going to be able to accomplish your financial goals or push your net worth forward. If you live in the Midwest or in the South or somewhere where there's not necessarily crazy real estate markets, that number needs to be about 25%. And Blake, the worst part is banks will often allow people go up to 51% of their take-home pay towards their mortgage payment or rent. Right. And that's, uh, that's, I think that's an inherent systemic issue is that you go to a bank and you say, um, how much house can I afford? They don't actually answer that question. Instead, they come back and say, this is how much we'll let you borrow. And they never answer the important question is, what can you afford? Yeah, yeah, good point. Good point. So somebody in a big city then, let's say, is taking your advice and they are saving about 35%. I'm sorry, they're only paying about you know 30%, 35% towards their um, rent and they're saving the rest or you know the rest is going towards food and their car and this and that and they're saving some. With that money that they're saving, what do you recommend? Just letting it sit in a savings account, putting it in like an IRA? Yeah, I like the, you know, at three months expenses, not, it's not three months income, it's three months expenses as this sort of lifelong emergency fund. And whenever it dips, then your focus turns to filling it back up. What I don't like is when people get, you know, two years worth of expenses in a savings account because that's inefficient. The way I view it is that emergency fund then allows you to truly become an investor and not invest your emergency fund, but to take your income that comes after that and really start to understand the markets. Now, you should always be putting money into your retirement plan through your employer. Uh, there, there is zero reason to not put money uh, into your retirement plan. I, I always like people to invest when they're in debt, but I don't like them to save money when they're in debt. And it's kind of splitting hairs, but it's an important distinction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you mentioned uh, you know, saving money through your employer and that there's no reason that someone should not do that. So let's talk about being in like financial crisis mode a little bit and and or getting laid off from a job so if let's say you're in a huge financial crisis what sort of changes should somebody be looking to make with their finances and their savings or what steps should someone kind of take to insulate themselves when they get laid off from a job you know i think so many emergencies happen in the aftermath and not the event itself I think people make such bad decisions when they're panicked, me included. I mean, if I'm starving because I haven't eaten all day and I'm like, oh, I got to have something. So then I go grab fast food because it's the closest thing to me. Yeah, Terrible good. idea, really. Good analogy, uh, yeah. But in, in the moment, it, it seems right. Uh, so I got to think that people need to immediately look at their expenses and say, what's essential, what is non-essential? And by the way, in our new economy, there are things you can do to control your income and control your hours. I mean, things like Uber, things like Airbnb, you, that, that sort of, you know, I don't care what's going to happen. I'm going to hustle and get this done. That, that sort of attitude um, allows you to bridge the gap and it lets your head clear and, and to make good decisions. But liquidating, you know, cashing out your 401k is a terrible idea because then what you've done is you've taken your future because you can't touch that money until you're 59 and a half. You've taken your future and you're using your future to rescue your present which, Blake, that doesn't work. I mean, we've got our past, our present, and our future from a financial perspective, past being debt, present being our budget, and future being our retirement. It's like you cannot combine any three, uh, any of the elements together. Uh, it, it's a bad thing. Yeah. What would you say to the young person that's just like, YOLO, Pete, what are you talking about, man? I'm just trying to live right now. I'm living for today. What would you say to that? At first, I would question as to why I'm hanging out with someone that says YOLO. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, I, I get that. You know what's weird? Sort of the manifestation of that, of what I hear, Blake, is when people say to me, you know, I always thought I would die relatively young, so I don't, I don't save money, really. And it, it's kind of a weird throwaway. And the strange thing is, I hear that a hell of a lot. Like, yeah. it's a really strange way for people to justify doing stupid stuff. Uh, but it's all behavior, right? I mean, not only will we mature as we get older, we're going to make mistakes in our 20s. I, I think for a lot of 20-somethings, I like to say, by the time you hit 30, just make sure you're not in a ridiculous hole. So you're wild oats financially in your 20s. But, man, when you hit 30, it's time to, to make sure that we're pushing forward. Now, if you want a great financial life, by all means, when you hit 22, sock money away, do the right thing. But look, I mean, life expectancy for someone in their 20s is pushing deep into the 80s. A lot of us will live into our uh, to 100, which I don't necessarily want to do that. But if you did, that's 80 years of life left. You can probably blow off steam for a couple of years if we're being completely honest. Yeah, yeah. So don't take your 20s too seriously. If you didn't already save up $100,000, things might still be okay for you by the time you hit 30. Yeah, but you know who gets to make that decision is the person not in student loan debt. Yes. Right. It's, it's all trade-offs. You can't be the person that's like, oh, I have a $120,000 sexual therapy degree from NYU and now I want to blow off some steam. It's like, no, you can't do that. See, yeah. it's the person yeah. that went to the community college with no debt that can probably drive a, a car that they shouldn't drive. So is that a recommendation of yours um, for a young person in high school right now, if their parents are not going to be helping them out with school to, to potentially go the community college route? Uh, community college or less expensive college. I mean, I live in the Midwest and the major university of our state has campuses in the other major cities in our state. The primary campus is more expensive than the satellite campuses, but it's the same damn degree. Yeah. Um, And if you happen to live in that area, and, and that's the weird thing about college expenses too. It's the same thing happens when a kid moves to college that happens when two adults get divorced. And that is two households are created from one income source. And so when your kid goes to college, you are now recreating an entirely new household with a new set of expenses. And, and economically, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever uh, if you haven't pre-funded this moment. If you have to post-fund, meaning take out student loans, yet you're just living as though there are no limits, it just doesn't work. It, we can act like, well, you got to invest in an education. You can use the word invest to justify any stupid financial decision. <laughs> you really can. I, I, I was, I bought something for my yard the other day and I, my wife and I were talking about it. I was like, it's kind of an invest. And I stopped myself like, I'm sorry. Yeah. So, I'll, I say that often if I get like a really good beer at a, at a bar yeah. or something like that, this is a good investment. This is a really good investment. Um, so what would you say, um, in terms of saving tips for someone who is not making much money. So let's say you are, I don't know, living in the Bay Area and you're making $35,000 a year or something like that. You're barely scraping by. How, like, how do you save? How do you plan to save? Or do you say, don't even worry about saving right now? Now, there's two different answers. One is for people that handle cash, which sounds strange. But if you happen to be making that sort of money, which means maybe you're in food service or you're, you know, you're, you're being a barista or something. I had a buddy from high school that owned a bar, didn't go to college, had a barber shop from the day we graduated high school. And I, I oddly enough went to his inner city barber shop like two years ago just to get my hair cut to kind of have that flair, you know, like go be part of the barber shop. Definitely. And we're talking and he said, you know, Pete, from the day we graduated high school, every day that I cut hair, I put $10 aside in a box. So this dude 
had been cutting hair six days a week for the better part of 15 years, 17 years, putting $10 away in a shoebox. He ended up not only owning the barbershop on the block, but he owned the three buildings next to the barbershop. Damn, that's crazy. Because it was a simple, simple thing like that. So unfortunately, when people handle cash, they view it as like blow-off money. They, it's my walk-around money. It's my pocket change. The hell it is. It, it, I mean, it is money, and it, it needs to go towards your priority. So for cash folks... Peel a little off to that drawer that is taped shut. That's number one. For people not in that situation, um, I like people that have two jobs. I, that's, to some people hear that and they think it's condescending, but I think at some point in your life, uh, it, once you've exhausted lowering your expenses, the solution truly is more income, and that's the time to hustle. Yeah, good point. Um, I, I saw a very, I, unfortunately I didn't get to listen yet, but I saw a very interesting episode or, or uh, case study, I guess you could say on, on your podcast, which we'll get into here in a second. And the person's question was whether or not they were saving too much money. Oh well, yeah. Talk, yeah. talk to us about that. What, what is this concept of saving too much money and what was the concern there and what was your advice? Well, just as you, you know, you saw that and you're like, what? When we got our app, we get applications for our podcast, people apply online and I got it. And my, my producer's going over it with me and I was like, Psh, whatever. And so I was like, let's talk to this, this joker. So we get him on the phone and by God, I think he was saving too much for retirement. He was 30 years old. <laughs> and, and so the issue is this, he had a, a, a bunch saved. I, I don't know, 90,000 bucks or so by 30 and I don't even remember, but it was something to the fact that by the time he was 59 and a half, he would have had like four and a half million bucks uh, by just doing what he's doing comfortably on a regular basis, which, hey, that's great. I mean, I'm not going to argue that. But the issue was his wife was about to get a, a big raise. And so in doing so, he said, should we keep going towards retirement? The problem was he would kind of be broke until he was 59 and a half when he gained access to his retirement funds. So he wasn't going to live this sort of wealthy, do what I want lifestyle because of the restriction on his money. Right. So he was right. He should stop saving or he should save what he's saving, but not save another penny in addition to what he's saving on a regular basis. And that should go to what we call non-qualified investments. And Blake, that's when people can start a business, get a vacation home, buy a boat, don't buy a boat, you know, those sorts of things. See, now you're reeling back in all the YOLO folks out there that you alienated when you said I would not hang out with them. Now they're like, yeah, this guy's talking my language. I'm buying a boat. I've been 65 since I was 18. That's the terrible <laughs> uh, When you're 18 in college and they call you gramps, that's not good. <laughs> Definitely not, except for maybe for finance purposes. Um, all right, so why don't we end this kind of advice portion of it with what are the two or three most important things that you think that people can do to set themselves up for financial success? Just understand that your financial life is about behavior and not about math. Um, Everyone in the world, uh, well, let's say everyone in the modern world knows that smoking will kill you. It will kill you. If you go through a Mexican airport, you will see the packaging on cigarettes actually has pictures of black lungs on it as a bigger indication that what you are about to purchase when stuck in your face will kill you. Yet, what happens, Blake? Do people still smoke? Yeah, absolutely. It's not a literacy issue. It's a behavior issue. People know you shouldn't spend more than you make, but we still 
do it. And so understand that it's about behavior. Whatever, uh, when you reach down deep and you exercise at 530 in the morning, or if you, you know, do the healthy things in your life on a regular basis, those are the skills and the mindset you need to adopt for your financial life. So that's number one is that it's about behavior. Number two, save your raise. Uh, we are the upgrading states of America. We constantly want to upgrade the stuff we have. And so when you do that, you, you force yourself to become more dependent on higher levels of income because you expand your lifestyle. People are calling it lifestyle creep now. Uh, the, you just constantly need more money because you make more money. But you can cut all that off by when you get a raise, just taking it out, funding your 401k or making sure you're saving more, but not necessarily expanding your lifestyle every time you get a raise. Now, through your 20s, if we're being realistic, you probably will expand your lifestyle. But by the time you hit your 30s, especially 35, lifestyle creep is deadly and you need to stop it. Yeah. I Sorry to interject here for a second, but I was actually just having this conversation with uh, my stepbrother, Matt, who just graduated college and we were talking about finances and stuff like that. So in my previous life, I was fortunate enough to work my way up to to a six-figure job. And I've read studies about uh, I forget what school it was. I'm sure you know the one that put out the big study that I think like seventy thousand dollars. Around seventy thousand dollars is the average for like the level of happiness that once you make over yeah. up to seventy thousand dollars, will more money does equate to more happiness, and after seventy thousand dollars, more money does not equate to more happiness. And I told my brother Matt that I, I mean I I could not feel like that rang more true for me. I had several jobs under seventy. And then I had a few years over 70 and it was right around when I crossed that 70 threshold that, you know, I started being able to go out and order again, the, the example of being at the bar, like order the beer that I wanted to order and not feel weird about it and order the thing at dinner that I wanted to order and not feel weird about it. Um, but then when all of a sudden you make a hundred or you make whatever it is, it's not, it's not improving that experience at all. Any, so, you know, there's like you said, I guess there's no real need to go out and buy a Porsche or whatever it is. That money should probably just go towards savings, that extra money that you're bringing in now. Yeah. That my middle twenties was a big issue. I'm 37. Um, my hairline's more of a 47, but I'm 37. <laughs> and in my mid twenties, I was doing well, I was making six figures. And I remember thinking, I want to make as much money as I need to make so I can do whatever I want. And I think a lot of people in their 20s think that way. But then I realized how stupid that was ultimately that really success for me now is to have as few obligations as possible. So it goes down to what's better than having a lot of money, not needing a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) So even now I'm doing great now making more money than I ever have before my wife and I last night were talking about, all right, I think we can get rid of our mortgage here in like two years because we know that monthly nut that comes with the mortgage is, is what restricts us from doing the things we want to do. Yeah. Or at least in your, in your mind does, which is, you know, what matters. Yep. All right. So Pete, thank you so much for the advice. Let's talk a little bit about you now. Um, so I know that topic. (laughs) So you obviously are in finance. What I can't imagine being 18 years old and being like, I know what I want to do. I want to go into finance. So tell us about that decision as being a young man deciding to go into finance. Well, try it at 12 years old. We were in my uh, math class in middle school and my teacher said, Hey, we're going to do a stock market project. And I was like, no, all right. And so we just picked a bunch of stocks, you know, who can do the best with a fake thousand dollars or something. And, um, I did pretty well. 
And then my friend's dad was a stockbroker, and so I bought my first share of stock when I was 12. It was Philip Morris, uh, which I bought tobacco stocks when I was 12. It all comes full circle, Blake, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I profit from it. And, uh, and so I followed that into high school, and I started working. I started contributing to investments. Had two financial internships in college, and uh, I don't know. I, I like people's relationship with money, and it goes back to the behavior thing. The people think the financial world's about math and numbers, but it really isn't. I mean, it truly is about behavior and reaction and um, emotion. And, and so I kind of fell in love with it. I became a financial planner, and I was a financial planner for several years. And then I realized that a lot of my clients, even though they were making great money, I worked with a lot of professional athletes at the time too. No one knew what in the hell they were doing on a day-to-day basis. So here I was trying to manage their, their money. I managed like a hundred million bucks uh, for people. And then I realized that just like going to the grocery store, uh, they sucked at that. Uh, deciding what car to buy, <laughs> they sucked at that. And it was like, what, are we not treating the symptoms here? I mean, this is silly. And so in 2005, uh, I created the, the Pete the Planner brand uh, I had been a comedian as well. Uh, my career was going as a comedian and a financial advisor. Uh, and so I decided to slap the two together. And I thought, you know, what better way to talk to people about the worst topic on the planet than to do so with humor? Yes. And so I stopped doing comedy and just combined it into my brand. And 10 years later, it's kind of nuts. I'm like half comedian, half teacher. And that's now I'm about to go to my third half here and then half uh, financial guy. So that's a one and a half Peters, I guess. That's so great, Pete. And that it's just, it's so awesome. Like so many of the people that I have talked to on this show, when I ask them about what the best part of their job is, like nobody ever talks about it being the bonuses that they get or whatever it is. People always talk about it somehow relating to the connection that they get with people or the good things that they can do for people. That's just so cool that you decided to specifically move into financial wellness with finance and really just help, you know, everyday people get, get their shit together. That's awesome. Yeah. If you think about it, if, if someone that goes to a financial planner, they're going to have their stuff together no matter what happens. It's the people that are afraid to, and by the way, the financial services industry has a major problem. They have no way to compensate financial advisors to help those that need help the most. And so you'll, you'll always see this gap in financial wellness is that people that are in debt or that um, don't have $25,000 or $100,000 to invest are more or less ignored. And so this was a way to sort of reach those people and give them an outlet. And I love it, man. I, uh, to your point, I don't ever think, oh, today was a $10,000 day or whatever. I think I got three emails today from people from all over the country that read this or heard that and, and had a breakthrough. And there we go. I mean, that's, that's what drives me. Yeah, that's so cool, man. So talk to us a little bit about starting your band and growing your band. So I, you now have a blog, you have a podcast, you're featured on the radio in Indianapolis. You uh, are a columnist for the newspaper out there. In what order did all these things happen and how is it all going? Well, my, I had a friend who in marketing in 2005 and she said, you should start a blog, you know, like every marketing person tells someone in 2005. And I was like, okay, well, I'm a terrible writer. Let's start there. I'm a terrible writer. Uh, my first paper in college was a five page paper with one paragraph. Uh, <laughs> it was awful. My point was I only had one point. So why change paragraphs? Uh, so I started writing the blog, which was terrible. 
Then I decided to write a book uh, because I thought it would give me credibility. And the book was terrible, but it did give me some credibility. <laughs> terrible books do that. Then I got on the local news to promote the book. It was the local CBS affiliate. And they're like, hey, you explain things really well. Can you come back? And so I started going back there. Then the local Fox News radio affiliate was like, hey, do you want to have a radio show? And I was like, yeah, let's do that. Um, then I started doing Fox News National and Fox Business and CNN Headline News. And it just, in the meantime, now I've written 10 books and got my podcast and, and I've got a national newspaper gig on the horizon I can't exactly tell you about that'll be happening here soon and some TV show stuff that's happening soon. And so it Man, just became... So, but it's all been one foot in front of the other, it sounds like. It's always totally. just one, one step more. And by the way, it's it's hard work without having your hand out saying how can you take care of me person who's giving me opportunity? The opportunity is the compensation. And so um, also I had to draw a line between Pete, the planner I'm speaking in third person here. So if anyone wants to stop listening out of obnoxiousness, now's the time Uh, (laughs) I had to separate Pete, the planner, the brand from Peter Dunn, the financial advisor, which meant when I went on the news, the, the, it could never be to drive people back to call me on Monday. I think if you're going to be an expert and you happen to also sell services within that industry, the answer can never be call me on Monday. The answer is the answer. And so I drew a line and said, I will, even on my radio show, I never gave people my phone number to my office or told, I just, it was about helping them, not about getting clients. And I think at least in my marketplace where I live, that's the difference because there are people with radio shows and all sorts of stuff, but I smoked them because their answer is call me on Monday and we'll talk about it. Yeah, for sure. How do you feel that that having switched and, and gone for this financial wellness path, how do you feel like it has changed you? How do you feel like you've changed as a person since you started doing that? Uh, a lot. I mean, the, the harsh reality is when you stand up in front of hundreds of thousands of people a year and you you say these hardcore things to do and don't do, you're kind of a jerk if you do them yourself. And so um, my audiences hold me accountable to uh, my financial goals because it truly to stand up in front of anyone or go on any show and say, you do something that you don't actually do. That sucks. I mean, it'll come around and smoke you at some point. Yeah. Um, so so you're, that, you're referring to like, you don't drive some hundred thousand dollar car and stuff like that. Is that what you mean? No, I mean, I have an 08 of 2008 that's paid off. I bought it used with 50,000 miles on it. My wife drives an 04, which all of a sudden makes me look like a jerk that she drives an 04. It <laughs> <laughs> took a turn. Um, yeah, I, you know, I have my vices, things that I like. I drink a lot of wine. I mean, responsibly, uh, but it's in the budget, right? That's what I like to say there. And, um, I max out my 401k. My kid's college will be paid for by the time they get there. Um, I pay my taxes. I mean, so it's like, uh, once you take care of business, then you do have a little more leeway to spend money on what you want to spend money on. Yeah. Yeah. But so you're living even more responsible because of, because of what you do for other people. Yeah. I mean, it's relative, right? I mean, people, you know, if I send out a tweet or something on Instagram of, of like sitting with some friends, drinking a bottle of wine, there's chances someone could look at that and say, you're wasting money on rotten grape juice. Like, <laughs> I, sure. I mean, frankly, I don't really care what people waste their money on as long as their other things are funded. Yeah. And this is where I'm about to sound like an old guy. I really am. But you look at, at people that spend money on just crazy stuff uh, whether it be cars or like tattoo sleeves or all sorts of things, which I have no problem with if you're actually doing what you should do because you're only hurting yourself. And that is the old guy moment of the day. 
right there. <laughs> that was a good old guy moment of the day. It wasn't too bad as far as old guy moments go. Um, all right, Pete, why don't you leave us off with if, uh, if you could give just one piece of advice for someone that wanted to get into finance and they're inspired now and they want to help other people with their finance, uh, what would that be? Everyone gets into finance and says the following phrase, I'm doing this because I want to help people. But then the behavior that follows that isn't that. You can't want to help people that only have $100,000 to invest. You can't say, I, only, I love to help people only if they have money to pay me. If you're going to help, if you're going to be a resource for people and be an expert at anything, you have to have resources for people. True resources, not I have a, if I have a blog post that says, go budget, and then there's no other words there. And that's, that's pretty crappy advice. You have to show people uh, how to do things even when you can't make money off of them. So, Blake, that might be terrible business advice, but I've built a pretty strong living on that. So uh, that would be my advice to anyone that wants to be an expert at anything. It's if you're going to be an expert, you have a responsibility to the greater good to to share that with people that need it the most. Yeah, man, that that sounds like great advice to me. Um, so if there are any questions that uh, the listeners out there can think of in terms of <clears throat> financial advice questions, they can find you at PeteThePlanner.com, correct? And from there, you said they could submit questions to your podcast? Yeah, absolutely. The hell, people, I, my email address is all over the place. It's in the newspaper. It's on Fox News when I'm on. You can email me, Pete at PeteThePlanner.com. I do my damnedest to, to answer them personally, uh, whether we write about them on the blog and, of course, change your name and details so that we don't... Uh, compromise your identity but yeah we are here to help we legitimately are so pete at pete we have nothing to sell you we just love to give you financial answers dude that's so awesome pete and we'll put links to everything uh, up on the half hour intern site as well thank you so much for your time pete we really appreciate the help yeah keep up the great work blake i love the show hey thanks so much take care Hey everyone, it's Blake. I hope you enjoyed the episode with Pete and got some good financial advice. Be sure to head over to halfhourintern.com for show notes and links to any of the things that we discussed in this episode, as well as links to Pete's content. And if you don't already follow me, be sure to check out Half Hour Intern on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. They're all just under Half Hour Intern, and I regularly post these cool little photos for the episodes, as well as other little treats like awesome photos of my dog that are the cutest freaking things in the world. So check that out if you haven't already, and thank you so much.